So, good morning. Morning, everybody here. Good morning, everybody on Zoom. It's good to be together again. <clears throat> Today, we continue to explore the intimate connection between the aspect of karma in our studies and the vital matter of our everyday practice or everyday life. We will first today resume and conclude a chapter, chapter seven, from the book we've been working with. Uh, the future is open. Uh, so we will resume and conclude that chapter uh, and from the most recent study session in which we discuss the creation of suffering. And then we will continue with a thread from a few weeks ago, go back to that, examining the ways we form karmic patterns that blind us from experiencing an open and undetermined future. So, the creation of suffering. The natural instinctive yearning toward pain is known as kunjung in Tibetan and in Sanskrit, samudaya. Kun means all or every and jung means arising. So kunjung means the, the origin of all. In, in this case, it means the origin of all defilements, kleshas, which are mental states that cloud the mind and lead to unwholesome actions. So the five kleshas, anger, pride, passion, envy, and ignorance. It is also the origin of the five skandhas, which are permeated with the kleshas, Five skandhas form sensation, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Kunjung is also associated with two forms of obscuration. The obscuration of habitual tendencies and the obscuration of negative emotions. The flickering, which sets off the emotions, acts like the pilot light on your stove, which is always on and sets off all the rest of the burners. Likewise, there is always some flickering waiting to light, light up any of the skandhas or kleshas, which are ready and waiting to be lit up. And actually it feels this way. I think we can all uh, relate to that uh, in some way, that when something, when we feel triggered, there is a sense of something all of a sudden arising but at the same time, there is a sense of something ancient that's always been there or been there all along. Both are true. It is suddenly arising, and then we fly off the handle for whatever reason, so there is that immediacy of it, but there's also that ancientness of it. The idea of kunjung, the origin of suffering, is that it progresses. When we project ourselves, when we project ourselves, we could probably talk about this for a bit in a few minutes, what it means to project ourselves. When we project ourselves into a situation or into a particular world, we begin with a very small and minute shift of attention. And from that, things become enlarged and exaggerated. According to the Abhidharma, which is ancient Buddhist text from the 3rd century BCE, the connection between small ideas and large ideas is very important. 
For instance, sudden dramas such as murdering somebody or creating immense chaos begin on a level of minute concepts and tiny shifts of attention. Something large is being triggered by something quite small. The first little hint of dislike or attraction for somebody eventually escalates and brings on a much more immense scale of emotional drama or psychodrama. So everything starts on a minute scale at the beginning and then expands. Things begin to swell and expand until they become very large, immeasurably large in a lot of cases. We can experience that ourselves. Such minute shifts of attention are what creates the emotion of aggression, passion, ignorance, and all the rest. Although those emotions are seemingly very heavy-handed, large-scale and crude, they have their origin in the subtle twist that takes place in our mind constantly. So we'll, we can go back to that in a few minutes. Because of that sudden shiftness, shiftiness of attention and because our mind is basically so untrained, we begin to have a sense of casualness about the whole thing. We are constantly looking for possibilities of possessing someone, destroying someone, or conning somebody into our world. That struggle is taking place all the time. The problem is that we have, we have not properly related with the shiftiness. We experience the arising of such thoughts right now, all the time. Otherwise, the second noble truth wouldn't be truth. It would just be a theory, right? So the origin of suffering is attachment. It is possible for people who have been practicing meditation and studying the teachings who are opened up and intrigued to see this pattern. If you've been practicing, you are somewhat raw and unskinned, which is good, although you are too ripe. You might want to run away or try to grow thicker skin. Being able to relate with the subtleties of mental shifts is connected with the Hinayana principle of paying attention to every activity that we do in a smaller dose or smaller doses. There is no such thing as sudden psychodrama without any cause and effect. This is where karmic, this is where it's very important to understand how karma works. Every psychodrama that takes place in our mind or in our actions has its origin in little flickering thoughts and little flickerings of attention. So, yeah, is that, is that relatable? Is that something we can connect with? Uh, okay. Okay, you can go first and then, yeah. Just, I, would, I would ask you to please uh, project your voice, yes. right, so everybody on Zoom can hear you. I think that's very relatable, especially um, when you were discussing often before, um, before you know, God forbid, like a fit of rage occurs, what can, what can tend to happen is um, the scene of rage is painted in your imagination before it takes place in action. And as mindful practitioners, uh, I think it's very good advice to uh, be paying attention to 
you know, what's painted in your mind? What what is your um, um, what are the temptations that your imagination is sort of beck beckoning to you? Because when you when you recognize it in your mind, you can sit with those thoughts before they become manifested into action. And I think that is a is a really large key to breaking free of habitual um, bad habitual habitual behaviors. Um, so yeah, it is very relatable, and it is very ancient of a, of a system. In part, it's easy for me to conceptualize it as something like the spirit of rage manifesting within you. And the spirit of rage, of course, is very ancient because people have been angry for a very long time. Um, and yeah, it is very, very relatable. So, so one thing, yes, uh, anger is not new, but uh, what we talk, what this is talking about is our own personal version of it, right? So the, it's not a general thing, it's very personal because we get triggered, right? You know, when we get triggered, it's all about ourselves, right? So what's ancient is there is that propensity, right? Or, or that uh, uh, pilot, as he, as he describes here, right? It's always on because there is residual or there are residual effects, right? That have accumulated over time and they left some kind of residue, right? It, it doesn't have to mean anything, but it's there. It doesn't have to become any, something, right? But it's there. So the potential for that to become something is always there. That doesn't go away for, for a practitioner. The only difference is that a practitioner may have, may see a fork on the road. Somebody who's not practicing may not be able to see that. There'll be only one way to react to the situation. And that way will be determined by that ancient energy within or by the pilot that just comes up, right? But as a practitioner or as practitioners, we want to see that and we want to see that there are other ways to respond to the situation. And often, slowing down is the way to, be, to access that. Slowing down. If we, if we react fast, we're not reacting. We are being reacted, right? We're being used by that. But if we slow down and take a deep breath, as we often say, then we can see, oh yeah, there is that impulse in me. There is that impulse Right? But there, there is what's going on, and there are other ways that I may want to respond to what's going on. Slowing down intercepts that. Yeah. Yeah, no, just echoing that is um, immediately kind of the fear or the trap that I find myself encountering with this is that ancientness there mm -hmm. and the over identifying with it, of almost reducing our, attaching ourselves. To it as yeah, the, the, something that I'm reminded of is Kojin's story of his work nickname being Nitro. Uh, <laughs> you know, of over you know he would be identified as a angry person, not a person who is angry mm -hmm. or whatever, or that it was changeable and mutable, and just because it's something that you know, I think the ancientness, for better or for worse, conveys some sort of like an appeal to authority that it exists outside of us and outside of time and outside of our control. Mm -hmm. uh, and that we, just because we have this propensity towards 
taking anger as an example does not mean we are anger. And, and to your point of slowing things down and seeing that fork in the road and not over-identifying with the pilot, uh, both as the igniter and as the person flying the ship, um, I think is, is hugely important. Um, the, the momentary stuff is almost just, it's just momentary and they're small things. And when you kind of look at them, and I, I, I would argue for myself that I fall apart on the small things more than I do the big things, but they're often indicating, you know, other things going on of uh, and and I'll look at it and go why did I fall apart over the fact that I spilled like an entire bag of bird seed or something like that mm -hmm. like why did why was that the thing that crumbled me um, but maybe it was because of an accumulation of stress of other things and that was just that so I can treat the spilling of the bird seed as precisely just that I don't need to make it more <coughs> than that but I need to notice all of the other things that are kind of impacting me and just remember to breathe. Right, to expand a little bit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead. Just bouncing off of that, too, I've, I've just been thinking about what I'm going through right now. I'm um, starting to experience these, uh, not complete menopause, but you know, just these hot flashes. I don't know if, gentlemen, your, your wives, have, you know, obviously, some of them. I have this, 40 right? degrees for like five years. Right? <laughs> right. So I'm starting to, it's, you know, getting older and experiencing that is a totally different experience, but I was just thinking about this in terms of the reaction. So you can't really help the reaction um, physically. And I was just thinking, as you were speaking and as, as Justin was speaking, um, you know, this heat comes up very, very suddenly. And it, it, it just, goes into your neck or your chest or whatever, it's just it's like this dragon in you, right? It's like it's like you're a dragon. You've become a dragon and you're gonna be Um but you can't help that. But I was just thinking, you know, that's something that your body can't help doing in reactions is something that's happening in balance, right? So if you're at that moment where you can find that where you can see that there's a balance. Mm -hmm. I just got this like really um I don't fully understand it, but it's interesting to work with um, this balance of, yeah, this, okay, this is what's happening, you know, instead of running outside screaming <laughs> into the snow, you know, um, you, can, you can find a way to, okay, ride it, right, and then maybe see a different way. And that's, I just thought about that, it just thought about that in terms of that. Even those reactions in your body or yeah. your body's natural attempts of seeking equilibrium. They're looking for, ba it's yeah. looking for balance, right? Yeah. It's looking for balance between two hormonal yeah. objectives, body right? temperatures. You know, stuff. so um, it's just finding that, remember that emotions also are responses to um, hormones mm -hmm. and adrenaline. And fear and um, and all those that are trying to find a balance as well. We're always seeking homeostasis, and so um, just seeing it that way might be helpful. And I, I'm finding that helpful right now. So like yeah. So it's sudden, but then how do we meet the sudden uh, in in a not sudden way? Exactly. Mm. Right. You know. Right. Uh, it, it, it is a sudden uh, shift, right? 
But, um, and, you know, it, it, what he talks about here is very important because if we recognize that it all starts on a very minute shift of attention, then attention is the remedy, right? Or attention is how we can identify the tiny shift. So in a way, to discover it or get in touch with it before it becomes an avalanche. When it becomes an avalanche, it, it may be too late for that round. That round may, may, you know, we may already be swept away by that. One second, right? So, yeah. So to become aware. I want to see if anybody on Zoom wants to contribute to this. Uh, Fushin, yeah. Um, for me, one of the most powerful um, pieces of what you just read is um, that the pilot light is always on. Right. Uh, and, and I forget that I, I have control of the dial that turns the heat up or the heat down. That's all I wanted to say. Right. <laughs> So you're saying I have control over the, over the dial that turns it up or down, but you're saying I don't have control over the pilot. I have, the, the pilot is always on is, is right. simply what's so. Right. so. right, so the point is, right, so the question is, what is it that I can work with, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so to recognize what I can, what's workable and what's not. And the other thing is what's workable has to do with what's going on this moment, right? So if I see that in relation to what's going on, then there is something that's ancient maybe. At the same time, there's something fresh and new. And then um, allowing the fresh and the new to determine the reactivity rather than what I bring into it. The pilot is what I bring into it. Yeah. All right, so which, my which answer. Which will not disappear. Say again? Which will not be extinguished. Oh, right. Also, it does not have to. Right, right. right. Um, that, that, that's the notion of, you know, that, that's why I love the metaphor because I, okay. I, I do have control of that dial. Yes. You know, like my gas stove, I can turn it to high or, or, or slow simmer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Anyone else? Yeah. Hi. Um, Kego, good morning. Kego. Yes. Good morning, Kego. Good morning. Um, yeah. Thank you, Fushin, for bringing attention to that metaphor. I've also really enjoyed it. And I think, well, um, yeah, just that exchange between you and Roshi just now was very profound. Um, for me, I was just thinking about how little it takes for the pilot light to catch. And I think that all it takes is for me to think, I don't want to do this, um, to have something that I need to do. And I go, I don't want to do this. And I feel like that's like, it's like when you turn on a gas stove, you turn the dial up, I guess, and it goes like that's the moment and you just, and that's kind of the moment where it catches or it doesn't. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You wanted to uh, conclude? Go ahead, say something, and we're going to continue. So the reading uh, was on, uh, I guess, things that can help me 
excuse me, um, habitual reoccurring behavior. I, I use a lot of, um, I'm, I'm Catholic, so I use a lot of Catholic words to, to frame these ideas. Um, um, but I'll, 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 I'd like to do my best to keep it more open for Zen. In any case, um, breaking free from habitual bad behavior. Something that really, really helps me is to lower lower my intellectual mind so as to not have the conceitedness to believe that I can see the meaning of cause and effect. So when something bad happens, like for example, I missed a train. I missed a train and I'm like, okay, I'm giving an option here. I could be upset because I missed my train or I can I can accept the fact that I will I will not be able to judge cause and effect, and so there there must be something better um, that can that will occur because of this. And so I, I had to drive to my destination. It was it was a bit longer. However, on the drive, I saw the clouds that were so stunningly beautiful. It reassured my heart that that it was totally okay that I didn't t take the train. Just because of how beautiful the clouds were on the drive, I was totally content um, not having stressed over my, my missed train. And so with many events that happen to you that are bad, I think something that can really stoke the flames of your anger or discontentment is the belief that you can understand what cause and effect actually is. And I think that by humbling yourself so as to keep your mind open as to the good that will come, having faith in that principle will allow you to um, guide yourself more smoothly, I think. That's something that works for me. So, yeah. Right, so having um, faith in something new, in something different, in something that yes. we do not know, right? In, in, in new possibilities. That are that may be at this point unknown, <clears throat> right? So the outlook is more forward rather than backwards. Yeah, it takes a very, very, um, very open mind and very open heart to be in the face of something bad that happens to you, mm -hmm. and and have the faith that something good will come of it. And if it doesn't, if something good doesn't come of it, then it's totally appropriate to have it as a loss and not. Um, attach yourself further to it. It's a very, it's a very profound thing, but I think it can be very powerful. Thank you. So I'll continue another short part and uh, see if anybody else wants to comment. So the origin of suffering, Kunjun, which we just talked about, is based on the belief in eternity. Out of that belief, or the belief of eternity, comes the hope of maintaining oneself, of continuing to be, and the search for longevity of the self or the ego. Along with that comes the fear of death. We look for all sorts of alternatives, for some way to occupy ourselves. We keep groping around in order to survive. That groping pro process is connected with the development of the kleshas. We begin to look outward from ourselves to others, out into the world, and grasp at the world as a way of maintaining ourselves. 
grasp at the world as a way of maintaining ourselves. We use the world as a crutch. That process leads to suffering as a result because the various ways we try to maintain ourselves do not actually help to maintain us. In fact, they hinder us. So our scheme begins to break down. The more it breaks down, the more we have to rebuild. And as that rebuilding take place, takes place, the suffering returns. So again and again, we go back to rebuilding. It is a vicious cycle. The process of samsara goes on and on. We have to understand its workings, for once we know how samsara operates, we will know how to work with it. We will know what to overcome and what to cultivate. The path or journey becomes important because it breaks down fixation, holding on to oneself and holding on to others, which could be said to be the origin of suffering. So the fear of annihilation, the fear of the fear of the way things are actually, right? Uh, unwilling to accept or thinking we can't accept reality as it is, right? The reality of I am not what I think I am. I am falling apart. I am disintegrating. And this is nothing but a brief moment in which I create a lot of drama and suffering. Because what I do in this brief moment is devoted to thinking about myself. That brief moment between birth and death. And if I devote it to thinking about myself, well, first of all, it, it leads to suffering, as he explains. And second, it doesn't work. As, as, he just, as I just read, right? It doesn't work. So it leads to suffering and it's futile. So the more we do it, the more we realize it doesn't work the more frustrated we become and the harder we try, as if it has anything to do with not trying hard enough. Right. So I think those are sobering words. Do you think that? Yes. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> in, in an effort to live, right, and I'll speak for myself, you know, I try to make sense of things. Right? And making sense of things is a very slippery slope because sometimes things don't make sense. But there's a need, there's a need that I have to figure out that this has to make sense to me. And the reason why I think I feel that way sometimes is because if it makes sense, then I make sense. Mm -hmm. Right? So I'm perpetuating this sense of, of me, this sense of me. I make sense because the situation makes sense. I can relate to it. Mm -hmm. Right? So I think. Approaching these these ideas, like, like Justin, you talked a little bit about um, habitual behavior, bad habitual behavior. Well, I think we have to be careful that habitual behavior is neither good nor bad. It's the the effect that it has can be, you know, good or bad to other people, and you know, positive or negative, however you want to put it. But it, it's more that what we're trying to, I think guard against or recognize is fixed habitual behavior, right? Habitual behavior that's the same in every situation, right? Mm -hmm. The things that we, 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 that to help define ourselves, our fixed sense of self, 
that need us to make sense of the situation, right? Um, and when, when we always feel this need to make sense of things, the more things are not gonna make sense. And then the more we're gonna feel that it needs to make sense in order to function, right? So it's, it's I, I guess the analogy that I would try to make is like, when, when you put up a dam in a river, right? They, they let the water go through these gates, right? And that turns the turbines and stuff, right? So they're controlling the flow and the river becomes this fixed thing, right? And think of how much energy and effort is needed to make that dam and make that dam stand up, right? Versus a situation where the river's just flowing and you're going with the river, right? You're making adjustments as the river goes and you're making adjustments. So there's never a you, there's never the river, there's just this continuous adjustment as you, as you flow down the river. Because, you know, we can never, there's never <coughs> enough energy in ourselves to keep that dam up. It's, there's never enough. The dam is always gonna break and the water is always gonna come over us, right? So if, if we're constantly trying to fight the flow because we have a fixed idea of how things should be because that's what makes sense to us, to me, that's where I encounter the problem, right? When, when I'm trying to stand up against the flow rather than just going with the flow, but not in a sense where I'm just gonna let life roll over me, right? But going with the flow in the sense that I'm trying to find the entry points into each moment that's appropriate for that moment. So not having these fixed things that I pull off the shelf, I'm, I'm pontificating here, but I'm trying to make a point. Um, these fixed things that we can pull off the shelf, but rather have all of our experiences of what has worked and what has not worked, and, and use those experiences to develop something new in the current moment. That reminds me of MacGyver. <laughs> when he yeah. always used to get into them. I don't know if you guys, everybody knows MacGyver, but MacGyver um, would get into these situations where he would have to use his scientific analysis <coughs> and chemistry, knowledge of chemistry to get out of things. And so this thing is happening <coughs> But then he's taking things and, and trying to find a way to navigate it, right? He's trying to find a way um, not to resist it and scream and kick and cry, but to be silent and to do what he needs to do to, to get out of the situation. Or to be in the situation and let it, um, let it flow out, but with his, um, with his navigation. So, so the, he talks about the process of rebuilding oneself, right? And, uh, and, and it doesn't work. And so there is something that we do need to recognize, the uniqueness of our being, right? And, and to know what it means. It doesn't mean that the uniqueness of my being is creating me. It doesn't mean that. And this is where we, this is the, 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 the error, right? right? We think that because I'm unique, I am fixed. Or there is me, right? All it is, is just the one that appears in a very unique way for the moment, for the time being, that's all, right? Like a flower, like a leaf, like a tree, like the wind. It's just for now. So there is the uniqueness of, of, of that particular movement of the tree 
with the wind right now or the way the, the shape of a leaf, but it doesn't it doesn't make the leaf separate from anything. Right. But the, so there is an optical illusion there, right? If I only see that, if I see in a narrow way, then the optical illusion is going to tell me that oh yeah, this is fixed, it's separated. There is someone there, there is something there, a part of everything else. Mm-hmm. And that's the optical illusion we have to get over, or at least expose, right? And then we see, so then the uniqueness um, will no longer be the, the, the catalyst for, for, for the creation of suffering. It will be the other way around. It will be actually the catalyst for, for doing good, for, for, for uh, expressing the unique gifts for the welfare of all creation, as we often talk about. But there's got to be a shift of understanding, a shift from something or someone that I want to uh, sustain and re- keep rebuilding to realizing that there's nothing there to, be, to rebuild. There's nothing there to protect. Then we are free. That's why he's saying, you know, it, it, it doesn't work. But not more than that, it actually hinders us. It hinders our unique expression. We become stingy about it, actually. Well, yeah, because we, we start to, we, we have the need to define it, to make sense of it. Well, we'll hold on to it. Yeah. And I want you to know who I am. Right. And it becomes very problematic because of that. You know, and things are set up that way, you know, right. for a lot of times, you know. I remember I, I used, I, I worked for one guy, and he once told me, like, the first day that I started working for him, and he was like, you know, we're very direct here, so you can't take anything I say personal, right? So, I, and I thought about that, and I'm like, so, so what is this, a free pass for you to be a dick? Yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what does that mean? But... He was, he was really holding on to himself. You know, another term is like, I don't suffer fools gladly, right? It's just, it's just a way that you allow yourself just to continue to rebuild and rebuild and rebuild and fortify a fixed self that you can show to the world and that I guess if your fixed self is strong enough, then everyone will treat you a certain way so then it all makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone is afraid of you or everyone loves you or everyone miss you or everyone at you because you're spending so much energy creating this fixed thing that you feel has to be the same in every situation. <coughs> yeah. It's going to be a problem. Well, it is a problem. In a nutshell, you know, the whole thing of uh, realization or awakening, right, or enlightenment has everything to do with that. Yeah. When you awaken to that, you, you, are, you awaken from, from the dream. That's it. I'm not saying it's easy or difficult. I'm just saying that's what it's about, yeah. right? Because that's the, the problem and the solution. So real quick, because we got to move on. Go ahead. I think uh, another way to phrase that <clears throat> is um, people form their personalities based upon their karmic trauma. I think that's another way to think about it. And it might be the same idea. I just had that. That's all. Maybe work with that. So uh, I'm going to, uh, so this, this concludes uh, that part of uh, the creation of suffering, or the origin of suffering here as, he, as the last line. Now we're going back to uh, a discussion we had a few weeks ago, and I'm going to read the last uh, paragraph to, uh, to reignite that, to make the connection. 
So in terms of the future being open space, there is no security in the future or in the present either. There's no security and there's no entrapment. Actually, this connects to what we just discussed, right? This is what we're looking for, security. It is a free situation. So karma or karmic force has both a very powerful as well as very simple aspect. It is powerful because all things recorded psychological, all, all this, sorry, all this recorded psychological neurosis can bounce back at you at any time. <clears throat> at the same time, however, you can take advantage of the present situation on the basis of the inspiration of the future being an open situation. So, so the attention goes to that. It goes forward, not backwards. So the negative and the positive aspects coexist all the time. Death and birth are happening all the time. And then continuing from that, however, we should remember that karmic force is not an individual entity or an abstract entity at all. It is constant birth, constant death. It is reliving situations all the time. The previous memory of the past renews the present situation constantly. The more of a big deal we make of our security, that much more karmic debt is being created. Right? So the more of a big deal we make of security, because that's the only, the illusion of security needs that. It needs to rely on karmic entanglements or karmic streams because that's the only place to find it, right? That's the only place that there is something there or there is contents because the future being open doesn't have it yet. So we go back. That much more karmic debt is being created. How you relate with the past also affects how heavy the debt becomes. Whether you regard what you did in the past as light or heavy is your attitude, your concept. Situations are just neutral. They don't remain particularly light or heavy. We determine that by how we color a situation. Or it is being determined by the way we color it. We may not know that we color it, actually. Right? We may not know that we paint it in green. All we, all we see is green. But we don't see that it became green because of me. Right? Or this person became that because of me, not because of the person. Because I've painted the person in such a color, such colors, or array of colors, and that gives me a particular image of the person, which may have nothing to do with the person. But my attention is not on the person, it is on me and what I brought with me to the meeting with this person. So in reality, the non-existence of the present situation, the unconditional aspect of the present situation, is the real seed of the future. The non-existence of the present situation, the unconditional aspect of the present situation, is the real seed of the future. May not be what we experience, not because it's not so, because we are unable to see that our attention is not there. So we keep sowing the same seeds 
and keep, keep uh, meeting the same fruit, in a way. <clears throat> that aspect of the present has nothing to do with karma at all. It's open space. That's precisely the reason why we could attain enlightenment or why we could regress. It's purely up to us. Right? Because if it wasn't like that, there will be no enlightenment. There will be no awakening. There will be nothing new. There'll be nothing else. It'll be just broken record again and again and again. To explain this idea of unconditionality a little bit further, if you do something believing in your separateness, then the consequence of that will be to automatically strengthen that separateness. But if for a moment, you do something that is not based on the belief of separateness, if it's not based on thoughts that have any kind of prerequisite or dependency, then your activity ceases to be karmic. If you have an open mind without thoughts or without conceptualization, or even if there are thoughts without creating separateness, that doesn't breed any more karma. That is meditative mind. That's a meditative mind. Why is he saying that? Hang on a second. Hold on, hold on that thought. Why is he saying that? Why is that? Where is the connection between what, what I just read and the last line? That is a meditative mind. Because he's saying not to, to bring anything with you to the situation. Like, don't fill the situation with you. Let the situation fill you. Right? Because that meditative mind is the, is the, the openness to what's happening. Yeah. Free of the fixed manifestations and the, and the, the, the conclusions that we would draw. Um, free of separateness, I guess. What's a meditative mind? Yeah. Flexible. Flexible, okay. Say more. It can go in one direction and quickly see that there's, it's not the right direction and quickly shift to a different direction or a different thought that's appropriate that will help you act in a situation. What makes it flexible? It's not afraid. It's curious. It's alive. Non judgmental. What? Non judgmental. Non judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay, non judgmental, uh, flexible, adaptable, right? Uh, ready. Ready. ready yeah. Right? There's one alert. There's one aspect that, you know, that underlies all, underlying all that, right? And it's the aspect of not knowing. Ah. Meditative mind is a mind is the mind of an idiot, right? That's, that's the, the good idiot, right? So that's meditative mind is a mind that does not know, but it's also a mind that doesn't need to know, doesn't insist on knowing. Otherwise, it's not going to be wide open and everything you said will not, will be conditional, right? The flexibility will be conditional. 
or there will be other elements there, right? So a mind that does not know, of course, will be flexible because it doesn't know, right? So if, if, if this door opens up, it's not going to say, well, the other one should have opened up. Why is this opening up? I knew, once I would say, I knew, you know, going into this moment, I knew that this door should have been the one to open. How come this one is opening? So I'm going to go and break down that door because based on my knowing, that's where I need to go. So then there's no more flexibility. Great. But if it's, I mean, a flexible mind can only be based on prior knowledge. You can't have, if I, if I'm a two-year-old, I don't know all the possible outcomes, but mm. if I've lived a bit longer, I can anticipate some of the possible outcomes Right, so what you're talking about so is, the, yeah. For that door, as an adult right. who has lived, I can expect that it's possible that any of the doors inside could open, and because I know from prior experience, something friendly comes out or something not so friendly comes out, my prior knowledge guides me to react. Right. We're not talking about uh, an impulse to not touch a hot stove. That's different. We're not talking about protecting the organism. We're talking about what we have created over time as threats in our mind. What we perceive as threat is, is, is a lot more than that, right? It's not just hot stove, I'm not going to touch it because I'm going to get burned, right? I'm going to get burned in many other emotional, psychological ways because I've created something very fixed that I walk around with and I defend tooth and nail. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the idea of self. We're not talking about the survival of the, of the being, the physical being. So those are very different things. So to be able to discern, often we, we need um, a lot of, practice to be able to discern between what is actually a threat and what is not a threat, right? If somebody sticks out the finger to somebody else, they may perceive it as a threat and may react as if it is a threat. I'm just taking a simple example, right? And other, many other ways, right? So they may actually uh, retaliate and may act in violent ways, right? Because they feel threatened. People feel threatened for many reasons or, you know, but the question is, am I protecting this body, right? Or am I protecting an illusion? Am I protecting an idea of self? Am I protecting the ego? That's the question. It's a question of discernment. Can I comment? Sure. But the reason the finger was threatening was because the last time that finger came out, Yes, so then, then the question is, yes, in the past something happened. And I'm associating it. Right, so then the association be can become uh, a wall that blinds me from seeing that although in the past something happened, right now it's not happening. Right. But in my mind it's happening. 
So my mind, as, as we just read, my mind is replaying that. So what I'm reacting to is actually the past, not the present. So I'm not seeing this as an open situation anymore. I'm seeing it as a closed, fixed, deter predetermined moment. So this is something, this is very personal, very personal, like everything in practice, which we have to examine on the go. And we have to even ask the question, is it? Not it is. Saying it is, is not open. The future is not open. So in a way, the more we live, the less open it is. The more we live, the more we die. The older we are, the more dead we are before we die. So we have to find our way back, our way back home. Because the more we live, the more we accumulate stuff from the past. And the less we're able to move freely in life and see open, uh, openness or open opportunities. So, but yeah, it's, a, it's an important point of discernment, what you're saying. It is very important. Yeah. And we all kind of keep spinning around, is what we're saying. And then we don't go anywhere, and then we don't do anything different because, because of our knowledge from the past. So if we fix something in our, in our minds as bad, then we're not open to the possibility that I could see this in a different way. And instead of thinking, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. Constant, constant, constant. And it just goes further and further into the mud until you can't get out. And what we're trying to do here is, is get out, I think partially, is to get out of that, that mud and to say, well, let's talk about what this is now and not So we connect it with, again, meditative mind, right? So we go back to practice because this is not solved through a discussion at all. Um, but it, it is um, a pointer, right? So when we look at meditative mind, when we fold our legs and sit, what we want to practice is nothing. We want to be intentional about that. We want to be intentional of, I am practicing nothing which means I'm putting aside everything, right? All this stuff. And I am not sitting here and then um, reliving situations again and again and concocting the same stuff for the future. That's not, a, that's not the cultivation of a meditative mind. That's the cultivation of karmic entanglements, right? So I'm actually maintaining myself as the one who, 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 will who will create further karmic entanglements based on what was in the past. And then, and then the, the groove is already set. The course is set. Nothing changes. Meditative mind is a mind that does not know anything. Again, it does, it's not that it doesn't know how to protect itself as the organism protects itself. But that doesn't require much because it takes care of itself. We can look at animals and learn how to be from animals. Uh, one second. Just, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, the, the sentence, it was towards the end, the sentence ended with, uh, and then your behavior ceases to be karmic. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting sentence, very interesting idea. Ended with. Right. So he's saying uh, if, if for a moment you do something that is not based on belief of separateness. 
is not based on thought. They have any kind of prerequisite or dependency. Then your activity ceases to be karmic because it's, it's, it's brand new. It's not based on anything, right? It's based on continuity. And continuity is interconnectedness, right? Continuity means everything, depend, everything connects to everything. So it's no longer me, the one who did this in the past, or the one who was hurt by that in the past. It's open. I, I interpret that as something sort of like spontaneous intuition, because it's not, it's not, it's not conscious, consciously rationalizing something, but when you, when you lower your, your um, something like, when, I'm not sure this is quite it, but I kind of interpret that as if you lower your rationality and you humble your mind, then you can gain this natural sense of intuition that comes about you that can inform you on how to act properly. That's kind of how I <coughs> Yeah, he does talk uh, further down about that, about intuition and thought or intellect. Uh, all of it has to be included, right? Yeah. All of it has to be included in the way we meet the moment. Yes? I, I think about how in the past several years I've, I've been so, you know, intellectually self-aware. I've almost prided myself on intellectual self-awareness and how I think it has helped in my life to mm -hmm. be intellectually self-aware and aware of situations. But I still find myself in so many times where I'm just in a situation where I even know that I'm acting like a fool mm -hmm. and I can't help but act like a fool. Mm -hmm. Like I'm aware. I'm right. like, wow, I'm really... Right. acting in a way and there is still something in me that has to hold on right that just holds on for dear life to whatever yeah. is in that situation and all the intellectualizing and all the self-talk and everything still there's something missing and I feel I, 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 I feel like it has to be a spiritual answer there has to be uh, you know some kind of uh, other other way of getting out of that egoic mind that I still hold on to. Yeah, it's a natural part of a process, what you're describing, right? And it does take, it does take practice yeah. to deeper. So there's some, there is awareness that I see it and I know that this is going to lead to consequences, not going to be so good, right? Yeah. Right, so there'll be the same old pain and suffering and right, picking up the pieces afterwards. And yet I'm unable to stop myself from doing it or saying that, right? Right. So, yeah, it, it is a good uh, place to be in to actually become aware of that. But you have to keep practicing, yeah. right? So the more you practice, the more space there will be, right? And then you'll be able to do something else, right? To catch yourself. So in a way, to catch yourself sooner, right? before it starts, because there is a point, as I was saying before, the avalanche already is happening, you can't stop it, right? You see it, but you can't stop it. So if the awareness uh, arises in you earlier, the, the, the minute shift of attention, the flickering, right? If you, if you become aware of it sooner, then it's easier to divert at that point. But you have to become aware before that. So that's where the cultivation of awareness on the cushion is very important, right? The mind, the supple, fresh, new mind, right? That we want to cultivate on the cushion. The mind of not knowing anything. 
Right? That's what you're describing is a mind that knows. Right? I like the way you say space, trying yeah. to create that space. Yeah. 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 That's the real challenge. That, that's medicine. Yeah. Right, it's a challenge. That's fine. You know, practice is a challenge. Sustaining a practice is a challenge. Yeah. Because it takes time. Right? So, so it takes time. People get into practice and the beginning is very quaint. It's cool. It's interesting. After a while, we lose, we lose the, the interest uh, like a baby with a toy and then we move on to something else. That's, that's where real practice can happen or begin to happen when we lose the interest, when it's no longer shiny. So, but yeah, thank you. That's, that's good. Um, yeah. This is Kego. Kego. Um, yeah, I just wanted to comment in response. Um, I think that was Gendai. Um, but one of the things that I find helpful about meditative practice is it enable, like, it creates a space where. Um, I feel my awareness being raised, but I become self-aware in a way that is separated from um, self-punishment or like embarrassment. So I'll notice things like I'll reflect, I'll notice things about the way that I'm moving through um, my life and I'll become aware of certain patterns that are happening. Um, but I find in a meditative mind, um, it's like often if I become aware of something, it's quite painful because I'm like, oh, why didn't I know that? But when I'm in a meditative state, it's like, well, why would I know that? And I guess I know it now, but, um, so yeah, that's, that's been helpful. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to read some more and then uh, we'll have more time to discuss. Coma is, is purely based on the mind's creation of duality. <clears throat> Whatever area is covered by mind's duality is karmic situation with karmic debt and consequences. Anything that is beyond mind's creation ceases to become a karmic situation. The path of meditation was developed by people who are beyond the karmic situation, and <clears throat> we are following that example, which is free from karmic debt. Following that path, there is some kind of automatic fulfillment. That is why dharma is, the dharma is passionless. Passion, in this case, being aggression or speed. Dharma has no speed. We talked a little bit about slowing down before. Dharma is self-existing. <clears throat> We should get into the Dharma because it is unconditional. It has nothing to do with ego's ter territory. It is the voice of no man's land. <clears throat> we are here because of our past karmic situation, but, we are, but what we are going to do here is up to us. Right? Again, we are here because of what happened in the past. What we are going to do here is up to us. Or at least we can, we can realize, we need to realize, it's up to us. <clears throat> we might be born in a place that is completely poverty-stricken, with no food, no water, thorny areas, desert, and all kinds of miseries. 
we end up being here because of past actions. But at the same time, we have the right to walk out of that situation. That is our choice. We could immigrate somewhere else. That choice has nothing to do with karma. It's connected with free choice. In other words, you could be born as a completely miserable, confused, ignorant person, but no one prevents you from attaining enlightenment. You're not necessarily born with the tendency to remain ignorant and confused. <clears throat> it depends on how much you are overwhelmed by the past and the present. If you're captivated by the past, and I think that line which probably connected with if you're captivated by yourself, right? If you're captivated by the past, then you can't make a move. But if you have the faintest, slightest feeling that your existence could be changed, if you have any kind of progressive, rebellious or revolutionary approach, whatever you want to call it, then that breeds further freedom. In other words, the potential of the embryonic enlightened mind in us can be undermined in the by the heavy karma of the past all the time. Sooner or later, it's going to break through. So we're not entrapped in coma. There is free choice from that point of view. So again, so you know, not to be, and that's why I made a connection, not to be uh, enamored by ourselves. We are in love, I said different times, we are in love with ourselves. So we have to, through practice, fall out of love with ourselves so we can realize our true self. Anyone wants to comment on that or should I keep going? Yeah. Uh, yeah, just to, I think a quick thing because it sort of gets mentioned in the passage you just read and it kind of dovetails nicely with what was just spoken about of uh, the, the experience of seeing yourself in motion and seeing yourself doubling down in a situation as opposed to hitting the brakes, you know, like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, just completely like watching it happen in real time. And I think it's something that these examples are helpful, but they can also create further traps of looking at this as a linear thing, where I think much of what we've discussed here and much of what the practice is, is that awakening can happen at any given moment. And it's not just because you didn't catch it at the start and create that space doesn't mean it can't happen at any given moment. And too often, I think that moment of doubling down and the realization of what just happened becomes now another tool to create suffering of inviting guilt and like, my God, I should have done something. And now you're ridden with shame and you can't go up to the person to apologize, assuming it was interpersonal because you are in love with this sense of self of I know I know myself I am rational I'm mm -hmm. level head whatever it is that we created of ourselves I definitely you know have fallen victim but it's really just trying to not feel like the moments pass or I lost my opportunity to expand into the moment I think it's definitely like even when you fall you're still going to get back up so don't use that falling to create momentum to continue rolling down the hill and acquiring all sorts of dirt and gunk and stuff. <laughs> Thank you. So I'll read some more and then uh, we can uh, conclude that together. We might ask ourselves, if there is totality to begin with, where does ignorance come from? 
If ignorance emerges, it seems to imply a flow in the totality. It's a little bit like Dogen's question about if we are a Buddha to begin with, why do we have to do anything, right? <laughs> it's a very interesting question, an extremely good question. And in fact, that seems to be the whole message. Therefore, the Buddha and the great, and great teachers aren't inspired to give, to give us a second-hand answer to that question. It has to be a first-hand answer. Once that comes from you, <clears throat> one that comes from you. In fact, the answer to that question might be the password to enlightenment. We might go as far as to say that, right? And what he's saying here is that everything comes down to our own practice, our own turning inwardly, our own working with what we bring into the situation. We do practice together, we support one another, but nobody can walk for anybody. Nobody can awaken for anybody and nobody can make a mess for anybody either. <clears throat> the practice of meditation is not the study of the structure of enlightenment. In fact, in some sense, it's quite dangerous to talk about enlightened mind in relationship to meditation. It could be quite misleading because it would set up our expectations and the whole point of spiritual path is to transcend ambition or struggle. So presenting meditation in terms of how good you could become at it or how exciting it will be once you reach enlightenment seems to be a self-destructive way of presenting the teachings. With this approach, a person wouldn't be able to enjoy the journey, but he or she would constantly be dreaming about the goal. If you don't see if you don't see the process of your journeying as it is, then you won't see any value at any point of the journey. When you, when you focus on getting to the enlightened state and what you will be able to do when you get there, then before you even start the journey, you are dreaming about the end of the path, waiting for the ideal situation to present itself before you begin something is always a source of a problem in everyday life as well as in meditation practice. So we, we do uh, touch on that occasionally, right? On practicing not for any other reason, right? And, and that's a challenge by itself, right? But that's, that's the teaching, right? To, you sit down, not for any other reason. You get up, not for any other reason. You eat food, not for any other reason. Every moment, not for any other reason. Because the only place to experience enlightenment is here, right, this moment. And if the, if the attention is somewhere else, how are we going to experience it? You cannot be awakened later. Nobody can be awakened later. It's a very simple and true statement, right? Nobody can do anything later. Forget enlightenment, right? Is there anything you can do later? I just think it's funny. We think that way, but I, it's I not true. I like feel a lot of people have come to the practice with the intention of meditating to decrease stress <clears throat> and how disappointing it is to find out that <laughs> we're doing this for no other reason than to do it. <laughs> and, right. And, and it, that stress yeah. decreasing is a nice side effect, but like it's not. Right, so and the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, the more we do it for that or any other reason, the more stress that we create, right? 
But then when we, when we let go of the idea of I, I, I want to get something out of it, we're already getting something out of it. But we have to let go of the idea of getting, wanting to get somewhere, something else or wanting to get somewhere else. That's the problem. Because that's rejection, isn't it? Right? I'm rejecting. So, yeah, any, uh, any thoughts about that? Do you want to say something? Or? You're good. You don't have to, but... Uh... Um, I guess that what you're saying is that hitting me this morning is about intention. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and I guess some of what you said, Dago, about the self that's involved in this, that um, it seems that there's, I don't know what to call it, a healthy self, the provisional self. There's some self that has to, um, it seems, be present in this process um, that can claim responsibility for what's happening. and. I struggle with this word intention because I think so many times it seems to be used in a trivial way. Um, But in this sense, it seems to make sense to me that um, when all is said and done, there's this moment of intention that is claiming the responsibility. I intended for this to happen the way that it did, Um, whether it's being late for the train or or whether whatever it is that there's. you know, not that you planned that it was going to turn out this way, but that you take responsibility for the way that it is. And it's, um, I think, a very significant self without it being a heavy self. It's provisional. It, it moves from one situation to the next. It doesn't necessarily have to um, have a lot of um, um, energy that gets put into it, but it seems to be a moment that's important to this process. Um, and particularly, as we said, that there can be these moments which are non-karmic. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. what <clears throat> one aspect of the moment that makes it non-karmic is that you take responsibility for what has happened. And that takes a lot of the, the karmic, you know, I always do this, I'm such an idiot, or, right. um, you know, they really deserve it, I'm glad I got to do it this time, whatever, that, um, right. that, that taking of responsibility and that that sense of intentionality, that the, you bring enough of yourself to the moment that there's a self that can have that, you know, this is me, this is what has happened. Um, and it's, somehow that seems to um, soften some of the habitual stuff that we've been talking about, that I think the more that we take responsibility, the more um, we can enter into that uh, sense of the habit is just being somehow um, so negative, um, whatever. Anyway, that's what's spinning around. <laughs> right, so intentionality about being, about intentionality about this, right? About meeting this, <clears throat> being more deliberate, right? Yeah, and having that moment of, you know, that it doesn't have to be there, it doesn't have to be this sort of um, setting an intention before you do something, that sort of, that's mm-hmm. when I get problems with intention, but that sense that 
um, you know, I'm doing this with awareness of what's happening right, and right. my role in it and I have a role in it. And Right, so it's an alive uh, intention, right? It's not, it's not about anything else. It's, a, it's alive, right. right? And it's also not fixed. It's not static in terms of the heavy me. And it's not desire, really. No. It's, it's at the other realm. It's not at the... Oh. Right, right, right. Right, because it's not about anything else. It's not about a future possession to have or place. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, anyone else before we conclude? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> it just reminds me, I think this was in um, Suzuki's of My Beginner's Mind. He talks about how when you're trying to you know, do the whole enlightenment thing, you're trying to... It's funny because when... Um, he said something like those who have like who have enlightenment like realize that it's not really anything in particular at all um and i do feel like i can sense that i've been that things about how i live my life have changed over the years of practice and i'm very grateful for that and also simultaneously it feels very normal um and i, I feel like it's just um, part of practicing is the sense of gratitude and also just a sense of contentment and satisfaction. Um, and um, just a kind of like respecting of yourself in the moment. Um, because I can feel that something has changed, but it hasn't changed because I try so much harder than I did before. And I'm really making sure that I am um, real, I, I don't know, that I'm really trying to do something every moment that I wasn't doing before. Um, it just is. And um, it's just a gift of contentment. Um, yeah. Yeah, a gift of contentment. Thank you for that. Okay, so we, to be continued, let's finish with the four vows, please.
nostril. 